Good evening, everyone. Welcome to another episode of Tectonic. My name is Mark Hurst. I'll be your host for the next hour here on WFMU, Freeform Station of the Nation. From downtown Jersey City in the great state of New Jersey, I'm very happy to be here with you. I'm very happy that you have decided to spend an hour or so with me. I hope you'll stick around for the whole show because we've got quite an interview for you today. We're going to be talking to Susan Lynn, who just came out with a new book called Who's Raising the Kids? Big Tech, Big Business, and the Lives of Children. Now, I've been doing this show for five years and a few months, and over the years, a couple of times, people have written in and said, hey, how about doing a show that talks about the effect of all this digital technology on young people uh, from birth up through, you know, teenage years, let's say. And a couple of times I have covered different individual news items about what big tech is doing. Uh, For instance, we talked a couple of years ago when the Instagram CEO went to Capitol Hill and was saying how shocked he was that there were uh, there were girls under the age of 13 who were using Instagram because he said, well, we don't allow that. You know, the terms and conditions don't allow kids under 13 to even create an Instagram account. And so all of this news of harm for, for uh, preteen girls, uh, essentially, he said, it's not our responsibility because our terms and conditions say that un- ages under 13 should not create accounts. And so there you have it. Well, of course, what he didn't mention is all the ways <laughs> that Instagram has tried to make its service uh, interesting and exciting and alluring for kids of all ages, including those under the age of 13, and has done relatively little to tamp down on the, on the harms uh, that that service creates. I'm just, and I don't mean to Uh, focus only on Instagram. I'm just giving you one example of an individual news story that I covered. We also talked about the the, uh, Facebook files when those came came out. Uh, Those were leaked, uh, finding out that people at uh, senior executives at Facebook were aware that Facebook and Instagram, their products had negative effects on young people and they continued investing in them anyway. That's just Facebook meta. We could have uh, I could talk about other individual news stories that I've, I've brought up from other big tech giants. My point is, even though I have talked about a big tech giant here or there enabling or even trying to, to amplify or magnify the harms in order to turn one more buck of profit, even though we've done that here and there in episodes, I have not had a full episode to talk about technology and kids And part of the reason is that I was waiting for someone to write a book that really brought it all together. And Susan Lynn has done this. This is a great book. Again, it's called Who's Raising the Kids? Um, You can see a link to the book. It's it's published by the New Press. And um, there's a link to it on the playlist. If you go to WFMU.org, click Playlists and Comments. And if you're listening to a podcast or archive version of this show in the future, Go to tectonic.fm, T-E-C-H, tonic.fm, and click the playlist link on the February 13, 2023 show, and you'll see that link. There's also a cover image of Who's Raising the Kids on the playlist page. Why don't we go ahead and listen to my interview now with Susan Lynn. Uh, If you'd like to join in the live listener chat, you know where to go, wfmu.org, click playlist and comments, and you can join in. Here is the interview on WFMU on Tectonic. Susan Lynn, welcome to Tectonic. Hi, I'm so happy to be talking to you, Mark. It's great to have you on the show. I really enjoyed reading your book, Who's Raising the Kids? Big Tech, Big Business, and the Lives of Children. This is a great book, Susan, and I recommend it to all Tectonic listeners if they have kids or nieces, nephews, or are at all interested in the lives of children in this digital age. Let me just cut right to the chase near the beginning of the book, you talk about the outcomes that you have witnessed as digital devices have become so popular with young people. You write, 
Across ages, hours spent with screens are linked to a host of problems, including, but not limited to, childhood obesity, sleep disturbances, depression, and doing less well in school. So is that a starting point for how we should think about the lives of children with digital devices, outcomes like that? That's a pretty grim assessment. And that's not all. And I I just want to be clear. The technology is incredibly powerful, and it's incredibly powerful for persuasion. So it's not so much the technology as the business model. It's how people make money from using the technology that I think is the real problem. And the outcomes are for excessive use of technology. And the problem is that it's hard to use it just a little. It's incredibly habit-forming or addictive. The problem is that kids are using it way, way, way too much and way too early. One thing that um, recent research has shown, excessive screen time for babies actually seems to affect their brain architecture. And that's really scary. I mean, a a research just came out that suggested that the area of the brain that affects what's called executive function, which is, you know, the ability to start something and follow it through, which is really, really important, that that is affected by screen use in infancy. One of the notable things that you've done in your career, you've had a long and impressive career, a lot of different accomplishments maybe we'll get into, but one of the things you did was you founded something called the Campaign for a Commercial-Free Childhood, which is now called Fair Play. And one of the early wins is that you took on Disney when they were marketing these baby Einstein videos my wife and I have a child who's about the right age that I was see- I remember seeing some of those videos back in the day, and immediately I thought, <laughs> stay away from anything called Baby Einstein. This sounds really suspect. So speaking of how digital devices are messing with babies' brains, this is an existing issue that you've been on for a while. Tell me about Baby Einstein. Yeah, so Baby Einstein was marketed by Disney as educational for babies. And there was no evidence that it was educational. There was no evidence that babies were learning anything from watching videos. And yet they were incredibly popular, was really lucrative. I mean, Disney actually bought the franchise. And it just, the idea of targeting babies with television or videos was just enraging to me. I mean, we know a lot about how babies learn. They learn with all of their senses and they learn by face-to-face interactions with people who love them. There's no evidence that television or the new technologies are beneficial for babies. There's some evidence that they might be harmful. And so we did, we took on baby Einstein and and forced them, you know, actually to issue refunds. And now it seems like you and all of us are facing a hydra of Disney-level villains. I mean, Disney's in the mix still, but the main villains are the ones that come up all the time on this show, and you cover them in some detail in, in this book, Who's Raising the Kids? Facebook, Meta, Google, Alphabet, Amazon, and Apple. You have examples of all four of those big tech companies creating devices and apps, so both hardware and software, as you say, primed to encourage kids as early as toddlers or or even infants to, to use these devices as much as possible without any concern on the company's part about what it's doing to the formation of their brains or their relationships with family members or society. How do you summarize that problem for people when when they ask you, why did you write this book and what is big tech doing? How do you answer that question? What big tech is doing 
is providing huge corporations and conglomerates direct and powerful access to young children, I mean, and to teenagers and adults as well, who have the sole purpose of generating profit. And as you said, without any regard for children's well-being. And that, given that children are more vulnerable to persuasion than adults are, and as we know, you know, adults are plenty vulnerable to persuasion. With kids, it affects their brains, and it affects not just what they buy, but it, but it goes deeper than that. It, it affects their values, their relationships, and their learning. I mean, basically, what it means to be human and how kids understand the world is being shaped by giant corporations whose values may or may not, and I think often are not, you know, the values of the families who are raising these kids. You write a lot about values, that these devices shape the values of young people as they are immersed in these screens. I want to read something near the end of the book summarizing how we should look at big tech and the sorts of values that they're imposing on kids. You write, We have invited into our homes powerful, seductive entities designed to generate profits by monopolizing our attention, and they don't give a damn about our family relations or our children's well-being. Our smartphones are not just machines. They are conduits for tech companies to surveil and mold our behavior while appearing to serve us the real mission for smartphones is to serve us and our children up to advertisers to generate corporate profits. In other words, corporations have figured out how to infiltrate and monetize family life, and we pay them to do it. That's kind of a messed up system, isn't it? <laughs> it's, it's Yes, it's, it's a terrible system. And one of my biggest concerns that emerged as I was writing Who's Raising the Kids is the way that tech companies come between parents and children. In some ways, it seems as though really what tech companies want to do is replace parents. They wouldn't come out and say that, but they advertise their products as providing kids with or doing the functions that parents and caregivers, teachers, librarians, adults who care about children have traditionally done. So, and it's not just screens. And I think that that's really important. We shouldn't be limiting this to screens. I'm very worried about personal assistance, like Alexa for kids and um, Amazon's Echo Dot which claims to be able to help kids with homework. It claims to be commercial free. And, you know, my experience with the Echo Dot is that neither of those things are really true. It may help kids with homework, but it doesn't provide necessarily accurate information and sometimes provides harmful information. And as for being commercial free, it has a feature called I'm Bored. And never mind that boredom is useful for kids because it forces them to fall back on themselves and their resources. But kids are supposed to say, I'm bored to Alexa, and then Alexa will answer. So I said that to my little Echo Dot. Saying to the, to the Alexa thing, I'm bored as the prompt. Yes. And then what Alexa did is suggest four or five activities, all of which were de facto advertising for products or brands, American Girl, Disney, SpongeBob SquarePants, Star Wars, and so on. And so that's not commercial free. These are all brands that had paid for access. One assumes, I mean, you know, we're not told. We assume that that's why, right? I can't think of any other reason, I know. Susan. Yeah. That's the only thing that, that makes Amazon tick is when somebody pays them or, or they can squelch competition right. or 
do some other nefarious thing. I mean, uh, the Alexa surveillance device could have said something like, if you're bored, why don't you go take a walk outside? You're bored, why don't you get a sheet of paper and a crayon and draw your favorite pet? If you're bored and so on. But there was not even one option. I mean, you you listed in the book exactly what the script was that the Alexa thing came back with. And as you say, it was all branded items. Which teaches children that they can't have fun without buying something. They can't have fun without a brand. The suggestions that you give, which are proven to promote creativity and healthy living and all of that, they're not lucrative. They're not lucrative for companies. I mean, kids who play creatively, kids who spend a lot of time in nature, they're not generating profit for corporations. And we all have to remember, and parents really have to remember that that's the goal. And it's not good for kids, it's not good for families, and it's not good for the world. I mean, the idea that we're, we're inculcating materialism in kids, basically. And the message is that the things you buy will make you happy. And in fact, what research tells us is that the things we buy may make us happy, but not for very long. I mean, sustained happiness comes from relationships and experiences, not from what we buy. And also, we're in this climate crisis that is caused in great part by overconsumption. And yet we're telling kids that they need to buy things in order to have a good life. And basically, you know, we're undermining their health and their future by doing that. So we have a couple of approaches here. (laughs) If you're a parent or a guardian or otherwise in charge of the care of children, one approach to foster their creativity and long-term health and their development is to encourage them, as we were saying, go walk outside, use your imagination with a non-branded toy, um, draw or write on a piece of paper, and to interact with the kid as they go through these activities to grow the relationship and to mentor them as as they grow and develop. That's one approach, and as you say, that's been proven over, could we say, thousands of years of human development and human community, that it is a successful way, long-term, of raising the next generation. There's just one problem with that. The problem, as you point out in this book, is that Amazon doesn't make a dollar from that parenting approach. So that cannot stand as far as Jeff Bezos and the other big tech CEOs at Apple Facebook and Google are concerned, that cannot stand. So here comes the second approach. Only buy branded products with our corporate partners, the Disneys and Mattels and so on. Those products, those those toys or devices are going to be fully what we call interactive, which is to say they're going to foreclose any opportunity for the kid to be creative. It's going to tell the kid what the game is. It's going to tell the kid what the interactions are. And don't listen to your parent as they're trying to get you to go outside or put down the screen or something. In fact, we're your parent now. I mean, they all but come out and say it. So there's no parent who's guiding the interaction or the relationship at this point. And furthermore, it's not enough that you've done this with this branded toy. You need to buy another and buy another and buy another because the old one is no good anymore. You need to buy the whole set by which... They're saying, you have to pay and pay and pay and pay us, the big tech companies and our corporate partners, for this to be meaningful to us. Of course, that second approach has exactly the opposite outcome as the first approach. Yeah, and um, I think that this is probably a good time to say that I didn't write this book to make parents feel guilty. I think that's really, really important. It's really hard to raise a child today because this tech and big business dominated culture is extremely seductive and toxic. And it's seductive for kids and it's seductive for parents. These devices 
are marketed as educational without evidence, you know, that they that they really are. Apps are marketed as educational with without any evidence that they really are. And so to blame it on parents, you know, parents should just say no, is ridiculous and harmful. I mean, this is a problem for society. It needs to be fixed by society. These companies need to be regulated. I mean, there are things parents can do, and we can talk about that. I'm I'm happy, you know, to do that. And I have a whole chapter in my book about things that parents can do. And I wrote that chapter because I know that social change takes time and parents need help now. But we we all need to really keep it in our heads that that this is a societal problem. I totally agree. And you're right. You go to great pains throughout the book to repeat this message that, dear parents, this is not your fault. (laughs) This is just what's available in society right now. And yet, all of us should work together for some sort of collective response, whether it's bottom-up in the way that you've done with fair play or top-down in encouraging congressional action. There's also maybe another interim step and that parents need help from educators and from the health community. One thing that I think would be so useful that hasn't happened is that OBGYNs should have pamphlets in their offices about the potential harms of excessive tech time for babies. That would be really, really easy to do. And, you know, pregnancy is a time when people are really motivated, you know, to learn about all sorts of things. And we're back. If you're just tuning in, you're listening to Tectonic on WFMU. My name is Mark Hurst. I'm your host. We are halfway through my interview with Susan Lin, author of the new book, Who's Raising the Kids? Big Tech, Big Business, and the Lives of Children. We're also having a good conversation on the comment board. If you'd like to join in, go to WFMU.org and click Playlist and Comments. Or in the future, you can find it listed at tectonic.fm, T-E-C-H tonic.fm. Let's go ahead and listen to the second half of my interview with Susan Lin, author of Who's Raising the Kids?, here on Tectonic on WFMU. What we also have to um, think about is that all of these tech products are being marketed to schools and schools are embracing them. They were embracing them before COVID and, you know, after the lockdowns, you know, they're embracing them even more. And that's, also really problematic because the reason that tech companies are in schools is to inculcate, there's that word again, lifetime brand loyalty in children. And tech executives say, you know, if you get a kid on your platform, they'll be on that platform. I mean, that's why Google's handing out Chromebooks. That's why Google's in schools. That's right. Google and you mentioned Apple as well. Both of those companies have big investments in schools. I I think Google is probably more omnipresent than Apple is with their Google Classroom and Google Docs and Chromebooks and everything else. That's worth another show or three just to talk about Google's (laughs) intrusion into schools. But there is another example of a technology in schools that you write about called Prodigy. Now, an old internet veteran like myself, when I hear Prodigy, I think of that old um, online service that was a competitor to America Online back in the 1990s. That's not what this is. This is a completely different product called Prodigy that pretends to be an app that teaches math in a fun sort of way. But there's, <laughs> there's more to it than that. Can you tell me what's going on with Prodigy, Susan? Yeah, I I heard about Prodigy from parents. It purports to teach math. It's in a lot of schools. There's so much wrong with it that it's really hard to know where to begin. 
for one thing, it's got every everything that kids like. It's got wizards, you know, Harry Potter and battles, Fortnite, and wonderful animals, Pokemon, and you know, creatures. And and you know, you get an avatar and you go on adventures. And the math, I noticed this when I was first was looking at it. The math is just kind of dropped in, and it could be completely taken out. So in a way, you do math problems to win battles, basically. But, you know, I showed it to uh, an old friend of mine who, you know, wrote math textbooks and everything. And, you know, the, the math that they're teaching is, is completely rote. And it's not about the meaning of math or, or the way to get math, kids excited about math. Basically, the message is math is so incredibly boring that we have to dress it up with magic and magic wands and battles and, and things like that. And the other thing that changed over time as I was writing the book is that it began where you could see what other kids were doing. It's like a sandbox game, like Fortnite. I mean, they call it a sandbox game. I mean, you're not surveilled in a real sandbox by the way. But <laughs> give sandbox is a bad name. It's a terrible name. It's a it's it's another marketing brilliant diabolical thing. Prodigy is a it's a freemium. So what that means is that you start out for free and then you can play the game for free. But the way you play it is much more boring than the premium version and kids are constantly bombarded to nag their parents to upgrade to the premium version. And this is bad enough because lots of apps for kids are like that and apps that our kids play at home are like that. But this is in schools and it's so unfair to kids whose families don't have the money to upgrade. And yet, you know, the kids who can't upgrade because they can see what other kids are doing, they're looking at kids who can fly and, you know, have all sorts of wonderful things that the kids who can't afford the premium version can't have. And that's terrible in schools. So what we have is this app that pretends that it's going to teach math and the schools, maybe they're cash strapped and they need something or they perceive that they need something like this. So they bring this into the school. And as soon as, as soon as the app comes into the classroom, the app, as you say, starts bombarding kids with, go ahead, upgrade, upgrade, upgrade. Pester your parents. You have a whole chapter on what you call pester power. Yeah. Pester your parents until they, they upgrade. And, and guess what? If you upgrade, your wizard gets much more powerful and you can fly and you can do all these things. As you say, the the, the math is just barely incidental to this whole experience. What happens is the kids then can see who in their classroom has upgraded and who has not. And right. it gets to the point where, you, as you point out, the kids who've upgraded get to fly around on clouds. <laughs> and I the know. kids who have not upgraded have to trudge along in the virtual dirt. And in the meantime, not really teaching kids math. But one thing that I did in the book is, is talk about activists, not just activists who start big organ, what become, you know, big organizations, but activists doing local work. And one of, one of the people I talk about is a woman named Nora Shine, who is on the school board in a, um, a, a district in Massachusetts, who got her district to adopt a policy about how to choose what tech products to use in schools or not use. And I include a, mo you know, a model guideline for schools. So you know, it is possible for schools to use technology while eliminating some of the really more egregious ones. Let's talk about some of the tips that you have for parents you have a whole chapter of tips categorized based on the age of the child from birth up through teenage years. Let's start with infants. What should people do as they are preparing to have a baby or maybe maybe they have a, a newborn at home? 
How do you suggest they relate to screens? As I said earlier, there's no evidence that any kind of screen time is beneficial for babies. The one thing that might be beneficial is video chatting with adults who are too far away and who love them. And it is a way of keeping, you know, relatives engaged with the baby that they can't see all the time. And that is good for a baby. So I, when I talk about no screen time for babies, I'm not talking about video chatting. But really, there's nothing that is beneficial to babies. And parents sometimes use smartphones to soothe or amuse babies, you know, if the baby's getting cranky or something like that. But what you're doing is training a baby to turn to screens for stimulation and soothing, which is setting up them up for a lifetime of manipulation. So that's one thing. The other thing is to really be careful about how much you're using your phone when you're with the baby. And that's hard. One thing that you can do starting in infancy infancy is turn off your alerts. I mean, that's kind of an easy one. I mean, alerts are incredibly annoying to everybody. I mean, I personally can't stand and my friends get annoyed with me. But if I'm at dinner and somebody's alert goes off and all of a sudden, you know, we've stopped talking about whatever we're talking about, I find that really rude and incredibly annoying. I agree. I'm with you on that one. Yeah. But for children, the alerts are created to generate little squirts of dopamine, you know, so that piques your interest. And if you feel like you need to check your phone, check it. I mean, check it, I don't know, once an hour even, but turn off your alerts. And as kids get older, one of the things that research is suggesting is that when parents are like at a playground and they're on their phones, they tend not to respond when their kids call to them. And when they do respond, they tend to respond with irritation. And that's also true of young children. When children are engaged with the screen or an electronic toy and it's time to stop or their parents interrupt them, they get irritable. And that's not true if parents and children are doing other things, analog things. Let me read some of the other suggestions you've got in the uh, later age groups. Remember that there's no evidence that children must start using screen technologies in early childhood in order to succeed in a digital world. That's for sure. Yeah, and that's a particularly annoying (laughs) trope. I hear that a lot. I got to give my kids technology because how are they going to succeed? How are they going to get a job? But, you know, the technology is going to change. I mean, being able to swipe and tap and make things bigger on a screen, that's not going to be useful to any child who's young today. I mean, it's all going to go to voice. It's already going that way. Well, and honestly, how hard is it to learn how to swipe and pinch an image anyway? I mean, the skills that are going to be helpful later in life are critical thinking, being able to relate to other people, having a conversation. Creativity. Creativity. (laughs) All the things that these devices are trying to tamp down in order to sell the kids more stuff and keep them addicted. So if you restrict screen access, then you're opening the possibility that the kids are actually going to develop better skills, more important skills. Right. And the other thing about starting early with with having rules in your house about when screens are okay and when they're not is that it's easier to give something than to take it away. And so it's easier if you start out from the beginning with things like no screens at dinner for anybody. Putting your phones away, everybody turns in their phones in a a central location at night so kids aren't taking them into their bedrooms. And for parents who have already, you know, are already struggling with kids doing what they feel too much screen time, try doing less. Just do less. 
You mentioned an organization called Wait Until Eighth that recommends postponing getting children a smartphone until at least eighth grade, which I totally agree with. I mean, there are flip phones if parents need a way to, to text or call the kid when they're coming home from school or whatever, there are technologies, non-addictive technologies that'll, that'll do that. But they're saying, and you're also saying in the book, wait until at least eighth grade to get a child a smartphone. Right. And it's also, it's easier to do this with other parents. I mean, if your child really is the only child in their class without a smartphone, that's hard. I mean, it's hard to be the only one. It's hard for parents to be the only one. It's hard for kids to be the only one. Another thing that I recommend is try to find other parents or communities that at least share your values or overlap with your values. If all of the parents in an eighth grade class, and it's say like a fifth grade class, get together and say, okay, we're committed. We're not gonna you know, do this until eighth grade. That would make things a lot easier on the kids and a lot easier on you as well. I wanted to talk about something a little bit different. Decades ago, you appeared several times on Fred Rogers' show, Mr. Rogers' Neighborhood. You are a ventriloquist. You have a puppet named Audrey Duck. Yeah. (laughs) And you still perform with Audrey Mm -hmm. Duck today. I know that Rogers... When he started Mr. Rogers' Neighborhood, he was issuing a kind of a rebuke to the over-commercialized TV landscape for kids' TV back in those days. And here you are, in a way, continuing on the same line, trying to advocate for parents and teachers and communities in favor of healthy development of kids in opposition to the multi-trillion dollar business that is big tech and all of their media partners. I wanted to ask you, Susan, because you have been involved from the era of Fred Rogers all the way through to this very different, I guess, era of today. Is it actually different? (laughs) I mean, do you think that Fred Rogers felt the same way about kids TV as you and I feel about big tech today? How, How are things different or similar from when you first started out? The intent of marketers is the same as it's always been. I mean, the the commercialization of children's lives really began to escalate in the 1980s. And there are two things, two reasons for that. One is, you know, the 80s under Reagan was, you know, a time of deregulation of all sorts of things, including children's television. And in fact, in 1978, the Federal Trade Commission was going to ban advertising to television, advertising to kids under under eight and junk food advertising to kids under 12. And that was before the obesity epidemic. They were worried about cavities. And so the deregulation happened at the same time that the technology was getting more and more powerful more ubiquitous, more persuasive, had more capacity to surveil. And so what's changed, that combination is just a disaster for children and families. And so it's not that the intent, the intent to exploit has always been there, but now we have so much more powerful tools and they're only gonna get more powerful. I mean. The metaverse is going to be more powerful. And also, you know, we haven't even talked about robots, which my little Echo Dot, you know, is a precursor of social robots, which are already on the market today. And, you know, the robots are being advertised as being able to help kids with homework again and create social skills and prevent kids from being lonely. But basically, what we have to think about is who owns the technology, who's profiting from the technology, and how are we being exploited as we use it, and how are our children being exploited? And we really need to all be thinking about that. 
How can people keep in touch with what you're working on and also maybe get involved with what Fair Play is working on? Uh huh. Well, Fair Play is um, their website is fairplayforkids.org. And I really suggest if you're at all interested in this, that you take a look at what they're doing. They're doing just incredible work these days. I'm I'm so I mean, I, I'm so proud of them, actually. I, that's a little condescending I, or sounds that way. I don't mean it that way. But their FTC complaints have, you know, resulted in, you know, Google being seriously fined and and changes in YouTube kids and, and all sorts of things. They're doing great work. So fairplayforkids.org. And my website is susanlin.net. And um, you can contact me there. And that's Susan, L-I-N-N, dot yes. net. <laughs> yeah, Susan, L-I-N-N, dot net. And I want to, again, recommend to listeners your book, Who's Raising the Kids? Big Tech, Big Business, and the Lives of Children. Susan, thanks again for taking this time to be with us today on Tectonic. It's my pleasure. just tuning in you're listening to tectonic on wfmu my name is mark hurst i will be your host for the remaining 15 minutes of the show and then the great dave mandel comes on with another episode of it's complicated his prog rock show he's in the bullpen right now was chatting with him before the show so please stay tuned to wfmu after the top of the hour we just heard my interview with susan lynn talking about her book, Who's Raising the Kids? Big Tech, Big Business, and the Lives of Children. And uh, I really appreciate Susan taking the time to speak with me. Um, I learned a lot from her book, and I agreed with her book, as I think you heard. (laughs) And we didn't even get to everything that was worth talking about in her book. She has other chapters covering some other aspects of digital devices and marketing and the effects on kids and families. So if you're at all interested in the effect of big tech and big tech's products and their corporate partners on the lives of children and families, go get that book. And uh, you will find that uh, there are insights and pointers and resources there for you to learn. Uh, the uh, nonprofit that we talked about at the end, Fair Play, uh, Susan founded the Campaign for a Commercial Ch- Free Childhood, CCFC, and that, I think it was 2021, a couple years ago, they changed their name to Fair Play. So if you've heard of Campaign for a Commercial Free Childhood, that's what that turned into, fairplayforkids.org, and you can see on their site, and there's a link to that, uh, that organization, as well as Susan Lynn's website, susanlynn.net, on the playlist. And you can see there's a lot going on in this space. And so what I'm trying to do in an interview like this is just introduce you to someone who is, is involved in this space that's so important and knows the players and can, can point us to initiatives and uh, groups and people out there who are doing just really good work in this field. And so if you're interested, there is a wealth of, <laughs> of, uh, of, of more ground for you to cover. This is just the, the barest uh, summary, uh, introduction to the effect of digital technology on, on kids. And I think you heard, you know, the, the, the uh, summary, if I had to give one, of the, the interview in the book is that big tech's uh, outcomes are not good for kids today. And that's not to say that digital technology itself is bad for kids. That's not what we're saying. It's not what Susan was saying, certainly not what I'm saying. What we're saying is that the companies that are in charge right now, Facebook, Google, Amazon, Apple, uh, even Epic Games and, uh, and, and this company that makes this prodigy so-called math training software, 
the, those companies are fully devoted to maximal exploitation of kids. They're devoted to all but uh, explicitly trying to break up families and inserting themselves in the middle of what used to be an inviable relationship between kids and parents or guardians or other family members. They want to broker the relationship. So when you hear from, from a big tech company, our new silly little shiny thing, and this could be an app, it could be a device, it could be a, a surveillance puck, like an Alexa surveillance puck. It could be a what they call a social robot, which we sh I'm sure eventually will be called anti-social robots. Any of the, just, just slot in, fill in the blank. When a big tech company says our new fill in the blank is going to teach your kids fill in the blank, immediately you should uh, take that as a warning. It's going to teach your kids math. No, it's not. It's going to teach your kids manners. No, it's not. It's going to teach your kids whatever. No, it's not. <laughs> what they're trying to do is insert themselves between you, if you are the parent or the, or the caregiver, between you and the child. And they're doing that in order to, again, exploit maximally in order to achieve growth at any cost. Uh, there is not a shred, not a shred of ethical compunction within senior leadership at these companies as evidenced by their behavior. I'm sure people say, oh, I know a senior leader here or there at one of these companies. They're very nice people. I didn't say they're, they're, I didn't say they're mean. They kick their dog or whatever. I'm saying that the behavior of the companies that they are building and managing and running show through their outcomes that they only have one value and that is growth at any cost. And if it means addicting kids, so be it. If it means harming kids, so be it. You know, we could list out all of the negative outcomes that I started the interview with, quoting Susan's book. These executives say, so be it, as long as I get my bonus and the stock price goes up. What do you think this is? So we, we have to be skeptical. And um, at the same time, I think Susan, as I said in the interview, goes to great pains to reassure people if, if you find yourself, if you're a parent and you find yourself having to um, rely on these devices at times, don't feel guilty. This is not your fault. I mean, we should all try to do better, but the deck is really stacked against us. You, it's the parents, one or two parents versus an entire phalanx of the most highly trained, highly paid psychologists in the world are employed by these companies trying to find every last little nook and cranny of the child's brain to get them addicted to their toxic product. Uh, these, these are trillions and a couple of them, multi-trillion dollar companies that are devoting all of their resources to exploit children where, where there's a product that is, that is tuned towards kids. It is uh, a trillion dollar, whatever the slice of the trillion dollar market cap is, is devoted to exploiting the kids. It's just a fact. Uh, of course, the tech companies would never admit to this. I'm shocked. I'm shocked. We care deeply about kids. Harumph. Yes, yes. Okay, next. Um, and also on the playlist, there are a bunch of resources for you to read more. Um, these are resources I put in that are not in Susan's book. Uh, but they're related. I mean, they're right along the, uh, in the same lines. I put in articles, three articles written by Natasha Singer, who's at the New York Times and has been doing great work for years at the Times. I really like Natasha's work. Um, the oldest of the three is an article from 2017. This is a classic. It's called How Google Took Over the Classroom. And it describes Google's early uh, foray into education in the US, their use of Chromebooks and uh, Google, Google Docs and all of those, those online Google Cloud apps. Uh, and then we have also by Natasha Singer from November of last year, November 17, 2022, children's groups want the FTC to ban unfair online manipulation of kids. And so it talks about how children's privacy and health experts 
have pressed regulators to prohibit video games and social networks from using attention hacking techniques on youngsters. I mean, it seems to me, this is just my opinion, but it seems a reasonable request to our government to do something about trillion dollar companies that are trying to, what does it say? Uh, put in attention hacking techniques on youngsters. I mean, what kind of a society lets loose a trillion dollar company to go full exploitation on the youngest, most vulnerable people in the country? What a ridiculous system. Um, I know the FTC has its hands full <laughs> trying to do something about big tech's predations on all of us, but I certainly hope that that, that uh, initiative on the part of children's privacy and health experts gains traction. And then finally, from just a few weeks ago, December 19, 2022, Epic Games to pay $520 million over children's privacy and trickery charges. The article says the creator of Fortnite, this is the company called Epic Games, the creator of Fortnite and other popular games violated children's privacy and duped millions of users into unwanted purchases, federal regulators said. And so Epic is going to pay half a billion dollars, which is for Epic Games, I guess it's about the level of a sneeze, um, maybe a little more than a sneeze, but it's not much. But it's a start. I mean, this is, I look at these, these giant fines as setting precedent. I love seeing fines in the billions. I'd love to see some fines in the tens of billions. But it's a start. Um, we need regulations to put up guardrails, and we need fines for the terribly unethical behavior on the part of these companies. And yes, as, as Handy Haversack pointed out, Epic Games owns Bandcamp. Um, it's a complicated world, or rather, maybe it's a decreasingly complicated world because everything that we know and use online is owned by, you know, five companies now, or it seems that way. So yes, even Bandcamp is part of the company that just paid half a billion dollars for exploiting kids, getting caught at it. And uh, I, I hope they have curtailed that practice, although I think Fortnite is still out there with its, with its little mind tricks and dark patterns. But that's, a, that's a, a story for another time. Anyway, thanks again to Susan Lin for being part of this. A uh, couple of, I do have a couple of minutes left a couple of people on the comment board thought it was a great idea to put in pamphlets in OBGYN, OBGYN offices. Great. Go spread the word and let us know on a future show's comment board if you were able to make any progress uh, because that's a low-tech thing that would uh, get, get the word out to, uh, up to, to new parents. And the other thing I wanted to point out was some of the tips. We went through, we went through some of the tips uh, that Susan Lynn wrote about in Who's Raising the Kid, but um, th I just love that the section is called Resistance Parenting. Postpone getting your child a smartphone until at least eighth grade. We talked about that. She also suggested wearing a so-called dumb watch, not a smart, that is to say surveillance watch. Don't wear a surveillance Apple watch, but wear a dumb watch because a dumb watch and that's the kind of watch that I wear. I wear a Casio G-Shock. I think it costs me $40. The battery lasts 10 years or more. It's unhackable. No one is going to hack. And why would they want to? Because all this watch does, hold on to your seat, friends. You know what my watch does? It tells time. Oh, my gosh. A watch that tells time. It doesn't give me uh, the news, my email, texts and buzzing with all kinds of alerts and who knows what kind of surveillance and privacy problems. It tells time. That's what a watch does. It tells time. And you can buy one of these and it will not be distracting you with little stupid alerts all day. It will just sit there and tell time. It's a really, really good idea to get a so-called dumb watch. And then another one, I'll just end with this. If you're with children and you check your smartphone Tell them why you're doing it. This is a really good discipline. I, for some reason, I fell into doing this years ago with DJ Paradox, and I was glad to see it validated in Susan Lynn's book. I've done this for years. If I'm with DJ Paradox or, you know, him and 
another kid, a friend, and I'm going to pull out my smartphone. I want to explain this is why I'm doing this. Uh, I, I'm, I'm not just checking email just for nothing to, to be distracted. I am checking for a particular thing or I'm sending this particular text to this person and this is why. And then I put it back in my pocket or my, or my backpack. And um, that has been a, help, a helpful discipline. None of this is going to solve the problem by itself, but maybe, maybe these are somewhat helpful and we will get the bottom-up and top-down response in coming years to do something about this exploitative system that we're all part of. You have been listening to the greatest radio station in the world, WFMU East Orange, WMFU Mount Hope in New York City and Rockland County, and 91.9 FM and online at WFMU.org. Until next time, friends, you know exactly what to do. Avoid Amazon. Let me try that again. <laughs> Avoid Apple. Abandon Amazon. Forget Facebook. And whatever you do, get off Google. Have a great week. boy. <laughs> Welcome. It's another installment of It's Complicated. Here every Monday evening between the hours of 7 and 8, I am your host, Dave Mandel. Pleasure to be here, always. We're going to start tonight's show. I'm desperately trying to find it. Uh, here it is. Wait a minute. Wait a minute. I almost have it. We're going we're gonna to start with a, um, a track from an Italian group. Italian Prague group. There's an endless number of such groups. We're going to hear something from a group called Aqua, I guess be, be pronounced Aqua Fragile, an Italian group from the uh, early 70s, of course. They put out a couple of albums, I think just two albums, and we are going to hear a track from a self-titled record, self-titled album, released in 1973, uh, Aqua Fragile, and then we'll See what happens after that.
morning comes All the dreams I had have sunk into the night And all the light Is passing through the window Blinking on my hair Killing all the shadows That were my first love Down the street Numbers make the rules For all the men to play They broke all mirrors We never see our faces Our lives don't leave no traces
Money comes many times. 